You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. These are edited audio-only versions of my YouTube live show that you can join every Thursday at brett.live. This podcast is sponsored by my Patreon members. I'd like to thank all the paid supporters that make this show possible. You can get more info and follow my updates on all the content and open source I'm creating at patreon.com slash brettfisher. And as a reminder, all the links for this show, the topics we discuss, as well as the links I've already mentioned, are available on the podcast website at podcast.brettfisher.com. On this episode, I'm joined by Liz Fong-Jones from Honeycomb. She's a site reliability engineer, a developer advocate, and a labor and ethics organizer. She's been in tech for 16 years and was previously an SRE at Google. We talk about her new O'Reilly book, Observability Engineering, Achieving Production Excellence. Great title. And we cover what observability is and what Honeycomb can help us with. We also chat about our love for ARM servers and AWS's recently announced, as in days before the show announced, Graviton 3 instances that she uses to run Kafka and her other infrastructure at Honeycomb. So please enjoy this podcast with Liz Fong-Jones. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been a, uh, it's been in the works for a very long time. Yes, it's exciting. I'm, I'm excited to get to talking about your background and I've followed you on Twitter for a while. If you don't know who Liz is, she's a site reliability engineer, but a developer advocate, labor and ethics organizer. She has over 16 years of experience and she's been doing much of stuff at Google, but now she's at Honeycomb and just recently talking about shifting Kafka stuff in production, using new Graviton instances. You're on Twitch, you're all over the place. It's And it's great to have an SRE on the show and get into some of this observability. Let's yeah, do it. <laughs> I always love talking shop. Let's do it. We're going to talk about Honeycomb, obviously, a lot. And what is observability? That's going to be one of my first questions. We've also got a book that Liz and the gang over at Honeycomb have made. Observability Engineering. And it is about how to make your systems more observable so you can move faster as an engineering team. And there is a link that Brett has brought up that is how to get a free copy if you don't have a O'Reilly uh, Safari subscription. But if you do, you can get the book via O'Reilly Safari without having to give us your uh, name and email. I'm definitely going to be getting that in the long list of O'Reilly books that I never finish reading. <laughs> but this is the kind of stuff that I, I love because I, I still feel like I'm super basic and new to observability. It's one of those things where it's a evolving practice. No matter how much better engineering we get into our observability, I feel like I still am just new at this stuff. So before we even get started, you got a background in SRE and stuff like that. Tell us a little bit about that background. Yeah. So I started engineering and hacking on systems uh, a very long time ago, and I started doing it professionally when I was 17 years old. I started helping school teachers produce a math textbook, and then I became a, a DevOps type at a game studio. And I joined Google in 2008, and I've been officially an SRE since then. But I definitely feel like I was doing a lot of those similar things even before I joined uh, Google and officially became an SRE. What brought me to this area was wanting to learn what makes systems tick and to learn how to build them better so that we can have reliable services that are sustainable to operate for uh, that way those developers have a good time running it and users benefit. Nice. So the thing you focus on now is Honeycomb, right? And 
that for some reason people talk about this all the time. Like I see a lot of traffic on Twitter of people talking about Honeycomb. I haven't had the luxury of using it myself, but what caught your eye with Honeycomb? The team there, obviously, I hear a lot of things about some of the team there. So what was that about? Yeah, when I was looking to leave Google, I wanted to continue my work of helping people make their systems more operable to make their systems uh, better. And I've been doing a lot of work on Google's own observability tooling, although we weren't calling it observability at the time. And what I was seeing in the state of the art publicly outside of Google was pretty sparse um, in terms of people that were doing distributed tracing and APM that were kind of integrating that into large scale efforts where it wasn't just, hey, let's pop over an individual trace versus let's look at the collection of everything that's happened and find the most interesting and relevant traces. Definitely, I wouldn't admit, right? Like I haven't publicly admitted that I looked at both the companies like the Dog and Mike Step and Honeycomb. And I settled in Honeycomb. And I think part of that was that the Honeycomb founders, the Honeycomb engineering team really wanted to welcome me as a stakeholder rather than you you are going to be a talk-giving robot who goes around the world giving talks about our, our wonderful product, right? I, I, I am here to push push the boundaries and push the boundaries of the product. That's the kind of role that I wanted. So. Yeah, and I feel like you walk the walk, right? Like I see a lot of stuff out there about what you all are doing in production. Your talks are about yeah, what you all we, do with your own software. Yeah, we work in public. And that's very important to us because a lot of people don't believe us when they say life can be so much better. They're like, prove it. We're like, great. Like, here are the receipts, right? Like, here, here's what we have actually done. Right? This is how our engineering team of, at the time was a dozen people. Now it's more than that. Um, we're nearing 50 engineers. This is how we head on against companies that are 10 times their size. It's because we have a much more productive engineering team because we have embraced observability practices ourselves. Yeah. One of the things I was really curious about, what does the typical onboarding look like? Because I spend part of my time as a consultant, and I'm always working with teams that are onboarding themselves to the cloud native way. And so I see a lot of the beginner path. You know, I don't, Netflix doesn't hire me to make Netflix better. It's the other companies and that are just now getting it. And I'm very curious about how does the relatively immature team that's their first couple of years of containers, they're still struggling a little bit with distributed computing concepts. Is that, I'm sure you get all kinds, but what does the onboarding look like for something like Honeycomb and observability for a team? Yeah, I think that it is much easier when you are starting and adding observability from the beginning rather than trying to bolt it on afterwards. And there are definitely a number of ways that we do have and that the community as a whole has developed, not just Honeycomb, to make it easier to onboard. So for instance, with open telemetry, which is a common standard that we're working on, Alongside our competitors, if you wouldn't mind pulling up OpenTelemetry.io in your browser. So that's basically a mechanism for people to egress telemetry to any observability provider they like and to have that telemetry automatically collected, especially if you're using a uh, framework like Java Spring or if you're using uh, Rails. Right? There's all kinds of integrations that just collect the data that you need to get started with out of the box. The analogy that I made is that you can't go anywhere in distributed tracing land. Like it, it would be like walking around without a skeleton, right? If you have to have like bones or else you're going to fall over. So I think that's the basics of can you understand when requests are coming into and leading your service? That's the basics that you have to do. And those are things that you're generally interested in as a developer anyways. And Otel makes it easy for you to collect that info. And then after that, then you start layering on additional things, right? Like you start layering on, okay, let's add application-specific attributes. Let's add in additional metadata. Uh, and that's how you get to that richer picture of what things should look like. Nice. So you can see that 
we've turned into it, but so do a large number of our competitors. So you can see that, for instance, you'll see that there are folks from New Relic contributing, people from Splunk, from Datadog, from Lightstep. Like it's really a whole bunch of people that work together to, in the metaphor, like we, we all come together and we build this barn. Nice. I'm trying to remember, I think I might have had another Docker captain on the show last year and we talked about observability. It was my introduction to how exactly that and open telemetry ideas are different from just what we all just thought of as traditional monitoring. I've already forgotten a lot of these things, so it's glad to have this refresher. So it sounds like for a lot of the teams that I work with, the thing that they really struggle with is the metrics inside their application part. They're used to traditional teams. It seems like they're used to external tools. They put in like an APM module inside their app and suddenly it lights up their code so that they didn't have to actually create their own metrics. But it, it always becomes like an ops role to try to figure that the tr in the traditional right, teams exactly. where ops is that. I think that, that a feedback loop, right? Like the feedback loop is you own your instrumentation, you write more, you look at it in production, it tells you interesting things about your service, right? Like it's not, it's no longer a thing of you hand this over the walls to the ops team, the ops team uses APM to figure out what the heck you are doing. Um, right. Instead, it's a, we empower you to ask questions about your own code in terms that you understand. Nice. Yeah. For the teams I've seen doing that, it re I really enjoy that approach r rather than trying to brute force it from the other side, because that was my role all those years ago. <laughs> so always trying to, let's see if we can throw something in there to see the number of requests happening when it doesn't really come out of the app itself. So when we talk about Honeycomb, what's the elevator pitch for what it does and doesn't do? Because sometimes I, it's hard with a lot of these different tools to understand their differences and their advantages and stuff. Yeah, I think the simplest way is definitely to see it. But to do the quick elevator pitch, Honeycomb is a tool that lets you understand your distributed systems in real time by asking questions, by slicing and dicing data, and getting any visualization that you need all in one tool. Not in related tools of the same product suite. We mean one tool, one view, seamlessly flipping back and forth between an aggregate view of what's going on in your system as a whole. And let's drill down into that specific trace that had that latency at that time. Let's find out what's different about it and which other ones are SIPAR in that bucket too. Right. Hey there, podcast listener. At this point in the live show, which this podcast comes from, we do a pretty detailed demo getting into a lot of the features, and it didn't necessarily make sense to put this in an audio-only podcast. So if you're interested more in the tool and how it functions, check out a link in the show note that will take you to the YouTube Live that this comes from, and then you can get the full demo there. We're now gonna jump back into the conversation after we're done with most of that demo. But what was the other question? Someone was comparing, asking to compare threats with data dog, I think. So I think yeah. that's an, that's a really interesting question. I think what that basically boils down to with regard to data dog is data dog is a fine product for understanding your metrics. They do have an APM lens or an APM suite, right? But it's not necessarily well integrated. It's hard to jump from looking at metrics to looking at a trace to looking at a log. It adds time when you're resolving incidents, as opposed to having something that just fluidly works and very quickly for debugging. Mm. All right. So is this what Justin Garrison and Chris Nova write about in their book, Cloud Native Infrastructure, when they write about cloud native applications? Not sure if it means your application or the kind of applications that Honeycomb would work with, but take both. Yeah, <laughs> we 
Honeycomb, I would say, is definitely cloud native in some senses. Like we run entirely on, we are very scalable and elastic, right? Like we we adjust the size of our services, but also we are only starting our Kubernetes journey because up until recently, we were basically of the school of thought that we use an entire EC2 virtual machine, right? Like we'll use eight cores, 16 cores, like per machine. We don't necessarily need containerization to slice things into, you know, two core or fractional core workloads and bin pack right. them. That's not really our use case. And also we only operate like half a dozen microservices. We are operating 100 microservices, 200 microservices. Like we're just massively horizontally scaling out. But we're here to solve problems with microservices in general, whether they be six microservices or 100 or 200. To us, it's that kind of jump of you need to be able to understand things past the boundary of a single application on a single machine to zooming out to look at all of your infrastructure, all of your services. So yes, we are for, you can say, buying for uh, cloud-native applications. That doesn't mean, I'm sure we've all got legacy code. And like you said, if starting fresh, Greenfield is always ideal, but a lot of us have all these old apps and we always want them to be more intelligent and have more observability. So I'm assuming that path is also a path for legacy applications to get into something like Honeycomb. Uh, definitely, if you're on a legacy application, chances are you're trying to do a monolith microservice transition these days. Right. And if you're doing that, you really want to be able to understand how is the performance changing as I pull things out, right? How how is, how is performance changing as I migrate this workload to a cloud? How is this migrate? How is this workload changing as we substitute one dependency for another? Right. Like those are important questions you should be asking and being you debugging. Yeah. What about Elasticsearch? Yeah, so Elastic does have an APM front end, and they mm. also do operate, like, you can use Elasticsearch as a backend for Jaeger or another distributed tracing service. Right? There are people that are trying to build services adapted essentially from logging some log searches into tracing. It can be really challenging. This is actually a chapter in our book that I've been working on the past week, which is explaining to people why older long search technology is not quite as effective at trace searches as one would like. That it doesn't necessarily enable you to get results in seconds. It'll give you a result on all of your traces in 30 seconds, but to me, 30 seconds feels very slow, right? Right. Whereas in our case, we've written from the ground up a, a column store, although these days you could use something like, you could use a another columnar, columnar store. What's the one out of out of Yandex? It is uh, ClickHouse, right? ClickHouse. ClickHouse is an example of a backend you could use instead that would probably be a little bit more effective than Elasticsearch, but then you would have to build all the UI and visualization for utilizing it, right? That's mm. time-consuming, that's expensive, right? There are so many things that Jaeger does, but there are so many things that Yeager does not do. Yeager will show you that single trace, but it won't necessarily help you analyze many traces. So the answer is yes, you can approximate starting to get there with Elasticsearch, right? You can couple Yeager uh, as a front end to Elasticsearch as a back end and get like a front end and a back end. Or someone could in the future couple, couple Yeager to ClickHouse and get a so-so front end on a great back end. Right. Or part of our business proposition, at least, is we'll give you the whole thing batteries. Did I mean that the cloud native applications are supposed to export health data and telemetry data? Yeah, so that's what Otel <laughs> is doing. Yes. Open telemetry is exporting a telemetry data in service of cloud native applications. And that is why Otel is incubating under the CNCF, because that is one of the main barriers that cloud native applications have, right? Is that they introduce complexity unless you can understand that complexity and have it done like fairly automatically, it's hard to manage. So that's where Hotel comes in. You it's written your app with Hotel. It's it emits the telemetry data without you having to think about it too much. Send it to a service like Yeager or Lightstep or Honeycomb. 
Oh, okay. How do you compare Honeycomb to Pixie Lab? Ah, uh, yes. So Pixie is really exciting. Pixie is a company that got acquired by New Relic, I think, a year and a half ago. And what they do is eBPF. If you want to actually pull up the Pixie Labs homepage, uh, we, we can probably talk about that. So basically, eBPF is the extended Berkeley packet filter, which has like long since lost its actual meaning as to what a packet is. But it's this mechanism of tapping into the kernel in order to understand like what function calls are happening, what instruction calls, what syscalls are happening. Mm. And to do it with very low overhead to be able to help you generate stack traces in aggregate up about your application without instrumentation. And because it's being done at the kernel level, it's just tapping in the kernel level. And in the case of Pixie, they basically uh, install Kubernetes sidecar. I think it's really neat stuff, right? Like in that it is a mechanism for you to very easily have something you can attach Kubernetes pods and get data in aggregate. And then you can send it actually, funnily enough, through OpenTelemetry Collector. So there's this suite of things, right? Pixie is now a CNCF project. Uh, Flowmill is another CNCF project, respectively donated by, in this case, New Relic donated Pixie and uh, Splunk donated Flowmill. So basically this technology for manipulating BBPF data and transmitting it from your Kubernetes pods all the way to a backend, like New Relic. Right? So that's basically the, val the value proposition is, is instant access to, to data. With the caveat that it's not going to give you granular data on a per request basis. It gives you aggregate data about where your code is spending time. The right. idea is that it's always on and that it's relatively cheap from an overhead perspective, but it is not request level granular, but it is light of code level gray. I, I think it's this really interesting thing. Yeah. What we haven't seen yet is the combination of these two approaches together. So Pixie is a kind of telemetry, right? Or sorry, Pixie is a framework for producing what we call profiling type signals. So I think what New Relic is doing is really interesting, right? It is they're saying you should have these particular signal types. They've been pushing for a long time the idea that observability is metrics, logs, traces, I think like system change events. And now they're saying it's also profiling. To me, I care about the outcome, right? What's the fastest way to resolve your problem? And Many of these signals are useful, many of them aren't, right? So hmm. I think profiling is a very exciting signal. I think tracing is a very exciting signal. I think logging is on its way out. I think that metrics are situationally useful, but not necessarily useful all the time. So it's not a, you must collect them all. You just have to have the right set of them. And I think what we are doing as an industry is iterating to figure out what the right set of signals is and what analysis capabilities you need. All the data in the world is useless. In fact, it's right. less than useful because you're paying to store it. You can't query it to get answers to your questions. You're not actually solving your problem. So, right. I think you need kind of results-based observability. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's a very common question I get when I see people implementing any of these tools. They're looking separating the wheat from the chaff, right? Like the uh, figuring out what metrics I should be looking at and which ones are relevant to me. And of course, some of that is very generic, and some of that is very workflow-specific, very much their app. I feel like that's like the journey that I see a lot of people struggling with, right? Is Okay, I got all these. Uh, now I've enabled all the metrics. I've done all the things. Right, I've turned all the things in my vendor's product suite, but I still can't get answers what's going on. And I think right. that brings us to the next subject that I wanted to talk about, which is service level objectives. You tie together in, with a nice ribbon the idea of observability. And mm. SRE is about engineering systems to be more reliable. Observability is about solving your problems faster. What if we could combine those two things together? What if we could both measure reliability in the same place as we debug our reliability? So this is where we have this idea of service level objectives as a thing that you should have inside of your inside of your your observability tool, right? 
you should be able to measure and understand how am I doing with my business objectives, right? How am I doing with my goal that when a user types in a period honeycomb, it should finish in less than 10 seconds, 99.5% of the time. So I can go and look at this and see how are we actually doing at this goal and actually have a definition of this that is based on our telemetry data that says this is what our success criteria is and this is how we define what's in and out of scope. And also to be able to see, because there's this machine assistance, which requests are succeeding, what's failing, what are the common properties, right? That when you start thinking about it, let's say, this one queries 8% were failures. Let's look only at that. Right? That's the kind of thing that really helps you unify the, what's the business value of this versus, versus how do I then connect it all the way down to the system level and, and debugging it? Right. So I can go all the way from, hey, you know, I want 98.5% requests to be successful to what's going on with this one request that is failing or this set of requests that is, that is failing. That's, that really appeals to SRE and me, right? Because it means that I have a much easier time talking at high level about these are business goals. This is the level of reliability we're trying to achieve. How do we actually, you know, how do we actually target that level of reliability rather than being passive passengers in it? Like we shouldn't be right. looking at our SLOs every 90 days and saying, whoops, we blew it. What could have we done? We're looking at outages reactively. We should be proactively right. looking to understand what's happening. Why is this request taking 20, why is this request taking 27 seconds? And to me, it looks like basically most of the work looks like it's done in the first 10 seconds. And then we're just sitting there waiting on some, on a thing that never reported back to us. That's, that I think is the way to think about and unify the disciplines of SRE and observability is to make it actionable, to make it easier to understand. Right. That's like the ninja art of making it actionable. <laughs> yeah, ninja art. Everyone should be able yeah. to do it. And the way that you get to doing that is by having people have high quality tooling that does what they need, as opposed to, I read this in the SRE book, but there's no way I could achieve this. I guess we're giving up on it. That's no fun. All the, I read about how all the cool kids are doing it, but we're not going to be able to do that. Yeah, that's no fun. Well, there's people trying to do it and failing because they're just trying to adopt like right for their context, right? You are not mm. Google, probably. unless you're from right. Google listening to this call, you are not Google. <laughs> so we've got a couple of other questions. Uh, I think we've already covered the Honeycomb versus New Relic. I mean, versus all the tools, right? This is what, this is the standard question everyone asks. Is how do, how do I choose? Right. Um, the answer is you should have to choose, right? Use open telemetry and tee the data off to all of these data sinks. You can compare side by side, right? There's a reason why all of these tools have three tiers that you can just try it out. And I think that enables you to see what business value you are getting from each and, and make a informed decision. Right. So that's one of the challenges too, is traditionally... I would see developers adding logic for metrics that were very specific. They would only work on the one platform they were writing it for. And yeah. so now, they're, now their code is completely tied to one cloud service for any of their, mostly this is for monitor, this is for metrics, not so much logging. Because I feel like the logging standardization happened a little earlier than the metrics stuff, at least in my world. You say that, but on the other hand, I feel like logging the standardized, but it also ossified in some really bad patterns, right? Like, mm. We know today that you should write logs in a machine readable format, that they shouldn't be, you shouldn't have new lines in your logs just scattered in there right. and just dump slack traces because it makes it impossible to park. You have to have standards for formatting and validation of data so that you can ingest it so that you can, so you can slice it into columns and store it in ClickHouse or store it in, in a tool like Honeycomb, right? Like 
other ways, if you're having to use a tool like Cribble, I think it's Cribble.io, C-R-I-B-L, right? Like you're using a tool like Cribble to infer the format and, and, and yeah. transform it. Like you should just be writing it the correct way in the first place. Yeah, that takes me back to 12 factor, which is, I always, you know, when I talk to someone who's part of their knowledge gap seems to be that they're not following a fundamental distributing concept that those of us that have been reading manifestos and, and books for over a decade, that's just in our DNA. I find that a lot of times when people haven't adopted those early concepts, like 12 factor gives us, then all these other things later on, they really struggle with. That's the they never thing had about to deal walking, with. walking and then running, like... Uh, when people come to me and are like, Liz, I super need observability or I'm really excited about it. I ask them first, like the question of, are you able to deploy more than one time per two weeks? If you can't deploy more than one time per two weeks, like you should really think about improving your CICD, right? Like you should really think about other things than trying to add in observability because the value proposition of observability is being able to have that fast feedback cycle to add instrumentation to see your code running in production to add, then change your instrumentation or to change your results or Right. But if you are learning things about your code from looking at it in production after a three month delay, that's a really long feedback site. You're better served spending that energy just making your release train faster first. That's a really great point because it now makes me realize, yeah, if you have the best of observability and you can detect problems in minutes because you're looking at it ahead of time, but it takes you two weeks to fix it because your process for getting new code into production is still very arduous and human yeah, intensive, yeah. then what good is detecting it faster when it still takes you weeks to deploy code, right? It's putting the cart before the horse there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Google donated SQL com commenter to the CNCF. Yes. What does this solve? Yes. So the reason that we adopted SQL commenter as a open telemetry family project is that it is the transport layer solution. Right, like it is solving the problem of you have a bunch of SQL that's right in your database. You've got your slow query logs. You no way of correlating it to the application requests that generated those generated those SQL statements. Right, well, SQL Commenter now you can't. Right, SQL Commenter says we're going to pass the trace ID and the tra and the span ID and the parent ID and the like source of this downstream into your SQL code as a comment, so that then you can extract it from your database logs and just add it as part of the trace. And that trace then will show it a tool like Honeycomb or a Jaeger, right? Like you can then extract it and show the the SQL execution trace as part of the broader application trace that it that it, that, that caused it to happen. So we're very much in Hotel Land all about making instrumentation easier and making propagation and, and analysis of traces easier, right? The downstream analysis piece and ingest of the data, that's a concern of vendors or open source solutions. There's plenty of choice there, but we want to make sure that there is high quality data. Otherwise, none of these tools make sense. Yeah. So I did not know about this. This is really cool. Just yesterday, I was helping a team with, uh, d during a migration, a database a table locking issue and they were trying to chase down what exactly was causing the lock and it was very apparent that we didn't have the right tooling in place because it it was quite difficult basically shelling into servers and writing sql commands by hand yeah uh, it's definitely so a more advanced thing for sure yeah. there are a lot of things you can detect just from client-side instrumentation of your sql queries like i was this morning looking at a customer's traces in preparation for a workshop i'm doing with them and i was like wait a second this customer is doing the same thing that we actually have in our demo app which shows like you repeatedly call in mysql with the same sql statement except for the id you're fetching is incremented and they were doing this two thousand times and i was like wait a second why are you doing <laughs> right so yeah, there are a lot of things you can catch just from client instrumentation, but once you get those obvious ones out of the way, then you have to really have the data from the SQL trace as well. Would you recommend OpenTelemetry to get started here? Because I have worked for some companies 
and they have all the tools, Datadog, and it becomes difficult to find answers. Yeah, so I think it's two pieces, right? First, you have to make sure that you are consolidating tools to the right set of tools that are actually helping you do the job. And in order to solve that, you need to make sure that you are able to compare and contrast different vendors to have vendor data portability. So I think Otel solves the data portability problem as well as the kind of instrumentation ergonomics problem of making it as easy to add a printf debug statement as it is to add a trace span or add a trace attribute. So Otel solves the data quality issue. You can have high quality data and be piping at 10 different places, paying for it 10 times and not getting any insight. Really, like that, it, you have to have those two issues solved, right? data quality and picking the right tools to work with. But if you're locked into a particularly bad set of tools that are not working for you, you're going to have to rip out the old stuff anyways. You may as well replace those with Otel so you can comparison shop and not have to do any ripping and, and replacing in the future. That's one of the, all the dreams of all the cloud native things is that we can rip and replace parts of our infrastructure almost at will. It never is that easy, but it's getting easier for those of us who have been around. I got some gray hair, so been doing this a long time. And when I look back at just 10 years ago, it's amazing how much of this infrastructure and tooling oh, yeah. you have that just 10 years ago would have been a pipe dream. It would just, you'd have had to hire a Google sized team to do it for you. Does Honeycomb have alerting mechanisms? Yes. Notify the yes, SRE we do. ones. Um, yeah. So. When we encourage people to first set service level objectives up, right? So you define what more than usual. We're not a big believer in moving averages or things like, hey, like notice anomalies, right? Like we're much more in favor of saying this is the customer experience our customers expect and to let us know if it's violated, right? So in this case, you can see that this alert is firing, right? And that this is a thing that took a turn for the wor dramatic worse yesterday. And you can see that the alerts are configured to go to Slack. So it's a thing where you absolutely can and should set from whatever your tool of choice is. I think there is, where is the, uh, actually, if I show the integration center, it's going to show API keys. I should not do that on stream. But like you can basically configure to go to cater duty. Yeah, basically, let's see, in this triggers list, do I have E2ED? Oh, yeah. If you send, if you send alerts to pager duty, then it'll wake someone up. If your service level objective is in danger, we think that's the preferred approach rather than just saying nebulous, let me know if latency increases by more than 50%. Congratulations, you now set yourself on free day page at 2 a.m. because one request <laughs> has happened that has a latency that's twice normal. Guess what? Your P50 went up by by 100% in the last five minutes. Oh my God, is this an emergency? Yeah. Alert fatigue. That's my favorite topic. <laughs> the way you get out of alert fatigue is service level objectives and error budget yeah. burn alerts. Yeah. Are there any more data getting ingested in? What are the best practices to analyze false alarms? As there are yeah. more and more data getting ingested, what is the best way or practices? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think the best way to think about false alarms is to. So we've in the past had some of our customers that we know are not going to be performant because of the type of data they're sending or like the formatting or, or like what they're do what they're doing in particular. So we can exclude those from our service level objectives and say, we know about this, we're going to deal with it later, but this is not something that's urgent. Yeah. And so I think in general, kind of those false alarms fall into two categories. Either number one, this is a thing you should not be alerting on in the first place. Things like CPU usage of each individual host, right? Like why do we even care? That's a kind of false alarm where my answer is just shut it off. The yeah. other category of false alarm is this is important knowledge to have, but it's not actionable. And then you just exclude it from your things that are immediately paging you. I have seen people say, yes, let's do this AAOps thing. Let's use, I think, Big Panda or whatever to scrape through all these 10,000 alerts to figure out which ones are, are relevant. 
10,000 is not a very large number in machine learning event. And it's not <laughs> enough number to generate a good signal to noise ratio. Like you will drop alerts you needed to add. You will carry through a lot of close alarms anyways. It is much better instead to say, let's wipe the table clean. Let's just start by measuring customer impact. Let's start by measuring service level objectives to start from the top level of customer ingress and work your way down through the system and debug as you need to, rather than have these 10,000 things at the bottom screaming that some overworked AI is trying to sort out. Coming from that ops background, my old habit is always to work from bottom up because I've always been so used to the metrics coming out of the app being inefficient or not sufficient. <laughs> so I'm excited that we've got, especially when it comes to the books, you, I'm sure this, what was it? The observability, observability engineering book. I love that we're getting more scriptive stuff like this that we can actually use to implement because I felt like the guidance has always been very vague and hand wavy in the past. And you know, it's either super specific. I love, I, one of the things I do love about conference talks is when they list all the things they failed at, like all, all these are all the things we've done in uh, lessons learned sort of thing. Yep, After the things the fact, that don't work here. Yeah. yeah. And obviously you learn a lot from those, but they're very specific to a problem and they're not really going to help you prescribe other than that you're like, oh, we might have that problem. We should do what they did. Getting more into these books that are very specific, like this is, oh, look, go look at open telemetry, look at the standards and that this is creating and use that as the guiding instead of saying, yeah, let's just use KPIs. I, I published, I think two days ago, a, these are all the things that we tried to do with Kafka and failed. It's like, oh, we were actively running a years old version of Kafka, right? Because we were afraid of touching Kafka even to upgrade it. And therefore we just, you know, let it sit. And we're not actually doing the bug fixes or, hey, we're using this really inefficient instance type. And it was costing a load of, a, a huge load of money in order to pay for the Amazon Elastic Block Store. Right. These are all things that you can learn from us or you can not have to worry about if you use a managed service. <laughs> right. Liz is also on, we've talked about this early in the show, but you stream live and you talk about your work, the technicals of it on Twitter. So if you're looking, if you're someone who's in, at all interested in this, definitely check her out on those yeah, I'm doing every day at 9 p.m. Pacific. I'm doing a stream of Ather of Code, which is a yearly coding, not a competition, but a coding challenge, I'll say. And if there's like experiments before or after the problem solve, I'll also often take people on a guide of what I'm working on at Honeycomb right now. So that's particularly fun. Yeah, it's great to see more developers and people doing real work showing up on the Platforms it requires like a certain like willingness, willingness, willingness of your employer to commit to the idea of we are going to like unleash some of our secrets. It's okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. I've done that a few times. Yep. API keys on the screen or Kubernetes connect keys or whatever certificates. More than a few. <laughs> Recently did it on GitHub. I accidentally opened a, opened a uh, private repo unintentionally. That was a fun one. Uh, I didn't open it actually. What happened was I changed the name of it locally and then pushed it, not realizing that that would make a new repo that would be public by default. <laughs> so not oh, a, no. yeah. So it was just my dot files, no big deal. All of all my dot files, just a few secrets, mostly harmless. But yeah, I did spend a couple of hours in private trying to quickly get rid of all that stuff. Good news is, as soon as you put an AWS key into GitHub in the open, within minutes you get many emails from both GitHub and other organizations that scan your stuff and say, "Hey, you look like you just put an AWS." key in there. You probably should get rid of that now. I think I actually got a phone call from uh, AWS saying you would put an API key to, uh, on the internet and we were calling you to disable it. <laughs> but they, Yeah, so that's actually a fun one. One of the, uh, one of the 
things I did probably about a year ago was I changed us over from hard-coded API keys to now you get a 12-hour API key that is only good for 12 hours and it requires being renewed with you logging in with your Google account. Mm. So that that is a thing that I, I did for us a while ago to prevent that failure class. Right? Like it's defense in depth. It's super important. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and we have the... a dedicated security engineer and they're awesome. But before that, you had a class of engineers that are mostly trying to implement best practices on our own. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't think about it on our screens every day. How many times on our screen there is a secret <laughs> displayed somewhere? APM vendors are pushing towards full stack observability. What's your take on correlating metrics and traces from infrastructure network APM in a single place? Is this the future or just marketing? I think done well, it is the future. Done poorly, it is the vendor trying to sell you products that you don't actually need in order to inflate their revenue number. So therefore, I don't really like the term full stack observability, right? Like I just like the term observability Full stop. Right. Full stop observability, not full stack observability. So basically, can you get to a sufficient level of granularity to be able to debug your problems and without changing product suites or changing or changing tools? That's the goal that I aspire to. And I think that up until June of this year, it, the answer was that you needed another metrics tool in addition to Honeycomb, right? Because we did have metrics in the product. Now we do, but in a way that we think is is the best of all of the worlds, right? Like it is enough metrics to help you understand once you hit the, there's something going on in my infra to be able to continue debugging infra, but at the same time, like not aiming to reproduce all of the Prometheus query language. Like I think that there is a middle ground here in terms of, it's almost like the, what's his name? The person who says eat food, not eat, eat food, good, good food, not too much. Right, I think that the same thing is true of metrics and telemetry. Right? Collect telemetry, collect high quality, good telemetry, and don't collect too much telemetry. When you see a, a message about the full stack observability, think, think to yourself, who's giving me this message? What are they selling me? And what is actually useful to me versus them saying that, hey, new NFT dropped, 1% of them are golden, like you should buy a hundred of these, right? Wait a second. Yeah, he food most complaints, not too much. Yeah, that's uh, is down tip of my tongue. Yeah, he wrote Forks Over Knives, I think. And that's, yeah. Maybe that's from that book, yeah. Produce telemetry, mostly traces, not too much data. Sorry, and you were showing on your screen the blog post. I put that link in. Yeah, showing the blog post of me working out in open. Because right before we went live, we were talking about another thing that we could spend an entire hour talking about, which is uh, processor efficiency and kind of optimizing cost. Just talking about earlier the what have we learned Kafka, what have we learned not to do, what have we learned to do. And one of the fun things is that AWS announced basically about 48 hours ago that there is a new set of, of ARM of ARM 64 Gravit on two instances that are storage classes that allow you to have a lot of local NVMe storage and also some fairly high quality low power consumption processors. And we think they're really great. We got to try them in preview and we are now 100% migrated over, which I think is pretty fun. Basically being able That's, to... Yeah. Right, like, so when we talk about metrics again, like Kafka is hard to manage by traces, right? Like it is understood that Kafka is hard to manage by traces. Therefore, it makes total sense that you would want to have to have adequate metrics to, to look at your Kafka. Let's actually do that then, right? Let's actually have a look at, can I show some days or is that going to explode one of these graphs? Okay, okay, like to be able to see, okay, this is what it looks like when we do a bunch of Kafka instance replacements. This is how much lower our CPU usage is now to be able to see in one place all of the data about your infrastructure. So having the right tools, that's what yeah. matters to me rather than using one particular vendor set of tools. Yeah, I thought that was really great that you were public about, you know, publicly 
I think, did you, on Twitch, you actually shut down the last Intel machine or something like that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. On, on Twitch, I shut down our, la- our last Intel Kafka broker. Yeah, that's, and, and that we, and we could talk a whole another show about ARM and the Graviton. And I've been very bullish on, as soon as Apple announced their M1 chip, whatever, a year and a half ago, I, I felt like, okay, that and Graviton together are going to change everything. And so now in all of our courses, now we're, we're having to add and making sure everything works on ARM. When it was really hard to do before, it's getting much easier because... Golang supports cross-compiling out of the box, which I think is amazing. Yeah. It's not an optional feature. It's just on my default. It's just set and go mark and off to the races. And and, and so you're and a GoShop? If you're using a JVM app, if you're using a JVM app like Kafka, it's even easier. Like you don't even have to change anything. It's all in... I think the show... We had it earlier this year. So for those of you interested in Graviton, just search ARM back in this YouTube channel and there will be multiple shows. We had Alex Ellis on talking about all things ARM and ARM Raspberry Pi clusters and all that. And we talked about at least two shows about Apple and my theories on how oh, because right. of Graviton. When M1 released, I think that was the other tipping point in people's minds was when Apple endorsed it and suddenly yeah. Apple was mass selling like ARM chip-based laptops, not just ARM chip-based smartphones. Yeah. They were like, oh, holy crap, okay, now it's time to actually look at this in the data center. You're developing, your app is going to have to work on a, a ARM Mac anyways. You may as well run on ARM processor right. in the data center. Yeah, I think that honestly, it, it, it's a pain to migrate a little bit, but my daily life is now on, a, on an ARM M1. People are doing it all the time. And I think that, that awareness of multi-platform, it, it just most developers, you know, unless they're almost 50 like me, they haven't, they hadn't dealt with anything before x86. <laughs> So they've not lived through... Yeah, exactly. There's been this like 20-year, like 10 or 20-year window in which x86 was 99% of the market. Right yeah. before that, there's this like vibrant question of his power PC going to win, yeah. right? Is, yeah. Risk. Like, yeah. Is this risk going to win? Is, right? Or rem- remember like the Windows NT for alpha chips, right? I might have actually played with one of those servers. I think I'm, I was back in the Navy way back in the 90s, but I think we might have had an alpha or was it a... What was their their first sixty four bit architecture? Was like IA sixty four was yeah itanium yeah yeah itanium yeah. yeah so except for that brief window of itanium versus AMD sixty four like there hasn't been processor architecture choice in fifteen years and now there suddenly yeah. is or at least from a commercially viable there's always been these choices and I think the thing that changed it was cell phones yeah. right like cell phones it really caused R sixty four to become important and then it became and then came to the server. Fire. Congrats to Graviton 3 for you, because that's exciting. And I was excited yeah, about Graviton hey. 2, and now it's okay. I make yep. it make 60% all things. Lower power, 60% lower yeah. power consumption per, per unit of compute, and also 25% faster on average is Amazon's marketing, but <laughs> we are finding you at 30 to 35% in our testing number that I'm allowed to disclose. Yeah, yeah. Oh, great. You got, you're releasing stuff. You're obviously live streaming. Yeah. Writing a book because you're one of the authors of the observability engineering. Who else is on there? Oh, Charity Majors and George Miranda. Yes. Nice. Is this your first? Yes, this is my first book. Yeah, I haven't done that yet. I'm I'm very intimidated by it. I can make courses, but a book feels like, oh, no, no, no. That's serious. That's serious stuff. It's a lot of work for sure. A lot of work. Yeah, 
uh, especially when they have to get updated. So I, I wish you all of the evergreen yes, content. We, it turned out it got delayed long enough that OpenFunder Freak hit 1.0. So now at least we're writing against a, stand, a stable API for nice. the instructional content. It's, that, that's a very large plus. That's huge. I wish I could have done that with my Kubernetes courses. Yeah, it's uh, always going to work. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a lot of fun getting into this. And I'm now excited to get the book and check it out. I have tried a lot of other platforms, but I've always wanted an excuse to work on a project with Honeycomb. So I'm going to have to come up with one to uh, use myself or convince one of my clients to try it. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Please do. Yeah. And of course, you can find her, Liz LeGray, on Twitter, also on, on Twitch. Liz LeGray on, yep. on Twitch. And then on all the Honeycomb things on the website and the blog and stuff. So thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you in the next episode.